Chapter One, Part Two of The Night Operator by Frank L. Packard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Night Operator, Chapter One, Part Two. When Toddles left the dispatcher's office that morning with Donkin's promise to teach him the key, Toddles had a hazy idea that Donkin had wings concealed somewhere under his coat and was an angel in disguise. And at the end of two weeks he was sure of it. But at the end of a month Bob Donkin was a god. Throw Bob Donkin down, Toddles would have sold his soul for the dispatcher. It wasn't easy, though, and Bob Donkin wasn't an easy-going taskmaster, not by long odds. Duncan had a tongue, and on occasions could use it. Short and quick in his explanations, he expected his pupil to get it short and quick. Either that or Duncan's opinion of him. But Toddles stuck. He'd have crawled on his knees for Duncan anywhere, and he worked like a major, not only for his own advancement, but for what he came to prize quite as much, if not more, Duncan's approval. Toddles, mindful of Donkin's words, didn't fight so much as the days went by, though he found it difficult to swear off all at once, and on his runs he studied his Morse code, and he had the calls of every station on the division off by heart right from the start. Toddles mastered the sending by leaps and bounds, but the taking came slower, as it does for everybody. But even at that, at the end of six weeks, if it wasn't thrown at him too fast and hard, Toddles could get it, after a fashion. Take it all around, Toddles felt like whistling most of the time, and, pleased with his own progress, looked forward to starting in presently as a full-fledged operator. He mentioned the matter to Bob Donkin, once. Donkin picked his words and spoke fervently. Toddles never brought the subject up again. And so things went on. Late summer turned to early fall and early fall to still sharper weather, until there came the night that the operator at Blind River muddled his orders and gave number 73, the westbound fast freight, her clearance against the second section of the eastbound limited that doomed them to meet somewhere head-on in the Glacier Canyon, the night that toddles... But there's just a word or two that comes before that. When it was all over, it was up to Sam Beale, the Blind River operator, straight enough. Beale blundered. That's all there was to it. That covers it all. He blundered. It would have finished Beale's railroad career forever and a day. Only Beale played the man, and the instant he realized what he had done, even while the tail lights of the freight were disappearing down the track and he couldn't stop her, he was stammering the tale of his mistake over the wire, the sweat beads dripping from his wrist, his face gray with horror, to Bob Donkin under the green-shaded lamp in the dispatcher's room at Big Cloud, miles away. Donkin got the miserable story over the chattering wire, got it before it was half told, cut Beale out and began to pound the gap call. And as though it were before him in reality, that stretch of track, fifteen miles of it, from Blind River to the Gap, unfolded itself like a grisly panorama before his mind. There wasn't a half-mile of tangent at a single stretch in the whole of it. It swung like the writhings of a snake, through cuts and tunnels, hugging the canyon walls, twisting this way and that. Anywhere else there might be a chance, one in a thousand even, that they would see each other's headlights in time. Here it was disaster quick and absolute. Duncan's lips were set in a thin, straight line. 
The gap answered him, and the answer was like the knell of doom. He had not expected anything else. He had only hoped against hope. The second section of the Limited had pulled out of the gap eastbound two minutes before. The two trains were in the open against each other's orders. In the next room, Carleton and Regan, over their pipes, were at their nightly game of Pedro. Duncan called them, and his voice sounded strange to himself. Chairs scraped and crashed to the floor, and an instant later the super and the master mechanic were in the room. "'What's wrong, Bob?' Carleton flung the words from him in a single breath. Duncan told him. But his fingers were on the key again as he talked. There was still one chance, worse than the thousand-to-one shot, but it was the only one. Between the Gap and Blind River, eight miles from the Gap, seven miles from Blind River, was Cassill's Siding. But there was no nightman at Cassill's, and the little town lay a mile from the station. It was ten o'clock. Duncan's watch lay face up on the table before him. The dayman at Cassill's went off at seven. The chance was that the dayman might have come back to the station for something or other. Not much of a chance? No, not much. It was a possibility, that was all. And Duncan's fingers worked. The seventeen, the life and death calling. Calling on the night trick to the dayman at Cassiel's siding. Carleton came and stood at Duncan's elbow, and Regan stood at the other, and there was silence now, save only for the key that under Duncan's fingers seemed to echo its stammering appeal about the room like the sobbing of a human soul. C.S., 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 Duncan called, and then the seventeen, and then hold second number two, and then the same thing over and over again, and there was no answer. It had turned cold that night, and there was a fire in the little heater. Duncan had opened the draft a little while before, and the sheet-iron sides now began to purr red-hot. Nobody noticed it. Regan's kindly, good-humored face had the stamp of horror in it, and he pulled at his scraggly brown moustache, his eyes seemingly fascinated by Duncan's fingers. Everybody's eyes, the three of them, were on Duncan's fingers and the key. Carleton was like a man of stone, motionless, his face set harder than face was ever carved in marble. It grew hot in the room, but Duncan's fingers were like ice on the key, and, strong man though he was, he faltered. "'Oh, my God!' he whispered, and never a prayer rose more fervently from lips than those three broken words. Again he called, and again, and again, the minutes slipped away. Still he called with the life and death, the seventeen, called and called, and there was no answer save that echo in the room that brought the perspiration streaming now from Regan's face, a harder light into Carlton's eyes, and a chill like death into Duncan's heart. Suddenly Duncan pushed back his chair, and his fingers from the key touched the crystal of his watch. The second section will have passed castles now, he said in a curious, unnatural, matter-of-fact tone. It'll bring them together about a mile east of there. In another minute. And then Carlton spoke, master railroader, royal Carlton. It was up to him. All the pity of it, the ruin, the disaster, the lives out, all the bitterness to cope with as he could. And it was in his eyes, all of it. But his voice was quiet. It rang quick, peremptory, his voice, but quiet. Clear the line, Bob, he said. Plug in the roundhouse for the wrecker, and tell them to send uptown for the crew. 
Toddles? What did Toddles have to do with this? Well, a good deal in one way and another. We're coming to Toddles now. You see, Toddles, since his fracas with Hawkeye, had been put on the Elk River local run that left Big Cloud at 9.45 in the morning for the run west, and scheduled Big Cloud again on the return trip at 10.10 in the evening. It had turned cold that night after a day of rain. Pretty cold. The thermometer can drop on occasions in the late fall in the mountains, and by eight o'clock, where there had been rain before, there was now a thin sheeting of ice over everything. Very thin. You know the kind. Rails and telegraph wires glistening like the decorations on a Christmas tree. Very pretty. And also very nasty, running on a mountain grade. Likewise, the rain, in a way rain has, had dripped from the car roofs to the platforms. The local did not boast any closed vestibules and had also been blown upon the car steps with the sweep of the wind, and having frozen, it stayed there. Not a very serious matter, annoying, perhaps, but not serious, demanding a little extra caution, that was all. Toddles was in high fettle that night. He had been getting on famously of late, even Bob Donkin had admitted it. Toddles, with his stack of books and magazines, an unusually big one, for a number of the new periodicals were out that day, was dreaming rosy dreams to himself as he started from the door of the first-class smoker to the door of the first-class coach. In another hour now he'd be up in the dispatcher's room at Big Cloud for his nightly sitting with Bob Donkin. He could see Bob Donkin there now, and he could hear the big dispatcher growl at him in his bluff way. "'Use your head.' Use your head, Hoogan. It was always Hoogan, never Toddles. Use your head. Donkin was everlastingly drumming that into him, for the dispatcher used to confront him suddenly with imaginary and hair-raising emergencies and demand Toddles' instant solution. Toddles realized that Donkin was getting to the heart of things and that some day he, Toddles, would be a great dispatcher, like Donkin. Use your head, Hoogan. That's the way Donkin talked. Anybody can learn a key, but that doesn't make a railroad man out of him. It's the man, when trouble comes, who can think quick and think right. Use your... Toddles stepped out on the platform and walked on ice. But that wasn't Toddles' undoing. The trouble with Toddles was that he was walking on air at the same time. It was treacherous running. They were nosing a curve, and in the cab, Kennard at the throttle checked with a little jerk at the air, and with the jerk Toddles slipped, and with the slip the center of gravity of the stack of periodicals shifted, and then bulged ominously from the middle. Toddles grabbed at them, and his heels went out from under him. He ricocheted down the steps, snatched desperately at the handrail, missed it, shot out from the train, and head, heels, arms, and body, going every which way at once, rolled over and over down the embankment and starting from the point of Toddle's departure from the train, the right-of-way for a hundred yards was strewn with the latest magazines and new books just out today. Toddles lay there, a little curled, huddled heap, motionless in the darkness. The taillights of the local disappeared. No one aboard would miss Toddles until they got into Big Cloud and found him gone which is Irish for saying that no one would attempt to keep track of a newsboy's idiosyncrasies on a train. It would be asking too much of any train crew, and besides, there was no mention of it in the rules. 
It was a long while before Toddles stirred. A very long while before consciousness crept slowly back to him. Then he moved, tried to get up, and fell back with a quick, sharp cry of pain. He lay still. Then, for a moment, his ankle hurt him frightfully, and his back, and his shoulder, too. He put his hand to his face where something seemed to be trickling warm, and brought it away wet. Toddles, grim little warrior, tried to think. They hadn't been going very fast when he fell off. If they had, he would have been killed. As it was, he was hurt, badly hurt, and his head swam, nauseating him. Where was he? Was he near any help? He'd have to get help somewhere, or, or with the cold and, and everything, he'd probably die out there before morning. Toddle shouted out again and again. Perhaps his voice was too weak to carry very far. Anyway, there was no reply. He looked up at the top of the embankment, clamped his teeth, and started to crawl. If he got up there, perhaps he could tell where he was. It had taken Toddles a matter of seconds to roll down. It took him ten minutes of untold agony to get up. Then he dashed his hand across his eyes where the blood was, and cried a little with the surge of relief. East, down the track, only a few yards away, the green eye of a switch lamp winked at him. Where there was a switch lamp there was a siding, and where there was a siding there was promise of a station. Toddles, with a sudden uplift upon him, got to his feet and started along the track, two steps, and went down again. He couldn't walk. The pain was more than he could bear. His right ankle, his left shoulder, and his back, hopping only made it worse. It was easier to crawl. And so Toddles crawled. It took him a long time even to pass the switch light. The pain made him weak. His senses seemed to trail off giddily every now and then, and he'd find himself lying flat and still beside the track. It was a white, drawn face that Toddles lifted up each time he started on again, miserably white, except where the blood kept trickling from his forehead. And then Toddles' heart, stout as it was, seemed to snap. He had reached the station platform, wondering vaguely why the little building that loomed ahead was dark, and now it came to him in a flash as he recognized the station. It was Cassil's siding, and there was no nightman at Cassil's siding. The switch lights were lit before the day man left, of course. Everything swam before Toddles' eyes. There, there, there was no help here, and yet, yet perhaps, desperate hope came again, perhaps there might be. The pain was terrible all over him, and and he'd got so weak now. But it wasn't far to the door. Toddles squirmed along the platform and reached the door finally, only to find it shut and fastened, and then Toddles fainted on the threshold. When Toddles came to himself again, he thought at first that he was up in the dispatcher's room at Big Cloud with Bob Donkin pounding away on the battered old key they used to practice with. Only there seemed to be something the matter with the key, and it didn't sound as loud as it usually did. It seemed to come from a long way off, somehow. And then, besides, Bob was working it faster than he had ever done before when they were practicing. Hold second. Second something. Toddles couldn't make it out. Then the seventeen. Yes, he knew that. That was the life and death. 
Bob was going pretty quick, though. Then, C.S., C.S., C.S. Toddle's brain fumbled a bit over that. Then it came to him. C.S. was the call for Cassiel's siding. Cassiel's siding. Toddle's head came up with a jerk. A little cry burst from Toddle's lips, and his brain cleared. He wasn't at Big Cloud at all. He was at Cassiel's siding. And he was hurt. And that was the sounder inside, calling. Calling frantically for Cassiel's siding where he was, the life and death, the seventeen. It sent a thrill through Toddle's pain-twisted spine. He wriggled to the window. It, too, was closed, of course, but he could hear better there. The sounder was babbling madly. Hold second. He missed it again, and as on top of it the seventeen came pleading, frantic, urgent, he wrung his hands. Hold second. He got it this time. Number two. Toddle's first impulse was to smash in the window and reach the key. And then, like a dash of cold water over him, Donkin's words seemed to ring in his ears, "'Use your head!' With the seventeen, it meant a matter of minutes, perhaps even seconds. Why smash the window? Why waste the moment required to do it simply to answer the call? The order stood for itself. Hold second number two. That was the second section of the limited eastbound. Hold her! How?' There was nothing, not a thing to stop her with. "'Use your head,' said Donkin in a faraway voice to Toddles' wobbling brain. Toddles looked up the track, west, where he had come from, to where the switch-light twinkled green at him, and with a little sob he started to drag himself back along the platform. If he could throw the switch, it would throw the light from green to red, and the Limited would take the siding. But the switch was a long way off. Toddles half fell, half bumped from the end of the platform to the right away. He cried to himself with low moans as he went along. He had the heart of a fighter and grit to the last tissue. But he needed it all now, needed it all to stand the pain and fight the weakness that kept swirling over him in flashes. On he went, on his hands and knees, slithering from tie to tie, and from one tie to the next was a great distance. The life and death the dispatcher's call. He seemed to hear it yet, throbbing, throbbing on the wire. On he went, up the track, and the green eye of the lamp, winking at him, drew nearer, and then suddenly, clear and mellow, through the mountains, caught up and echoed far and near, came the notes of a chime whistle ringing down the gorge. Fear came upon Toddles then, and a great sob shook him. That was the limited coming now. Toddles' fingers dug into the ballast, and he hurried. That is, in bitter pain, he tried to crawl a little faster, and as he crawled he kept his eyes straining up the track. She wasn't in sight yet around the curve. Not yet, anyway. Another foot. Only another foot, and he would reach the siding switch. In time, in plenty of time. Again the sob, but now in a burst of relief that for the moment made him forget his hurts. He was in time! He flung himself at the switch-lever, tugged upon it, and then, trembling, every ounce of remaining strength seeming to ooze from him, he covered his face with his hands. It was locked! Padlocked! Came a rumble now, a distant roar, growing louder and louder, reverberating down the canyon walls, louder and louder, nearer and nearer. Hold second number two! Hold second number two! The seventeen, the life and death, pleading with him to hold number two! And she was coming now, coming, and, and the switch was locked! The deadly nausea racked Toddles again. There was nothing to do now, nothing! He 
couldn't stop her, couldn't stop her. He'd, he'd tried very hard, and, and he couldn't stop her now. He took his hands from his face and stole a glance up the track, afraid almost with the horror that was upon him to look. She hadn't swung the curve yet, but she would in a minute, and compounding down the stretch at fifty miles an hour, shoot by him like a rocket to where, somewhere ahead, in some form, he did not know what, only knew that it was there, death and ruin and— "'Use your head,' snapped Donkin's voice to his consciousness. Toddle's eyes were on the light above his head. It blinked red at him as he stood on the track facing it. The green rays were shooting up and down the line. He couldn't swing the switch, but the lamp was there, and there was the red side to show just by turning it. He remembered then that the lamp fitted into a socket at the top of the switch stand and could be lifted off, if he could reach it. It wasn't very high for an ordinary-sized man. For an ordinary-sized man had to get at it to trim and fill it daily. Only Toddles wasn't an ordinary-sized man. It was just nine or ten feet above the rails, just a standard siding switch. Toddles gritted his teeth and climbed upon the base of the switch and nearly fainted as his ankle swung against the rod. A foot above the base was a footrest for a man to stand on and reach up for the lamp, and Toddles drew himself up and got his foot on it, and then at his full height the tips of his fingers only just touched the bottom of the lamp. Toddles cried aloud, and the tears streamed down his face now. Oh, if he weren't hurt, if he could only shin up another foot, but, but it was all he could do to hang on there where he was. What was that? He turned his head up the track, sweeping in a great circle as it swung the curve, a headlight's glare cut through the night, and Toddles shinned the foot. He tugged and tore at the lamp, tugged and tore at it, loosened it, lifted it from its socket, sprawled and wriggled with it to the ground, and turned the red side of the lamp against second number two. The quick, short blasts of a whistle answered, then the crunch and grind and scream of biting brake shoes, and the big mountain racer, the 1012, pulling the second section of the Limited that night, stopped with its pilot nosing a diminutive figure in a torn and silver-buttoned uniform, whose hair was clotted red, and whose face was covered with blood and dirt. Masters, the engineer, and Pete Leroy, his fireman, swung from the gangways. Kelly, the conductor, came running up from the forward coach. Kelly shoved his lamp into Toddles' face and whistled low under his breath. Toddles, he gasped, and then quick as a steel trap, what's wrong? I don't know, said Toddles weakly. There's, there's something wrong. Get into the clear on the siding. "'Something's wrong,' repeated Kelly. "'And you don't—' But Masters cut the conductor short with a grab at the other's arm that was like the shutting of a vice, and then bolted for his engine like a gopher for its hole. From down the track came the heavy, grumbling roar of a freight. Everybody flew then, and there was quick work done in the next half-minute, and none too quickly done. The Limited was no more than on the siding when the fast freight rolled her long streak of flats, boxes, and gondolas thundering by. And while she passed, Toddles on the platform stammered out his story to Kelly. Kelly didn't say anything, then. With the express messenger and a brakeman carrying Toddles, Kelly kicked in the station door and set his lamp down on the operator's table. 
hold me up whispered toddles and while they held him he made the dispatcher's call big cloud answered him on the instant haltingly toddles reported the second section in and the freight out only he did it very slowly and he couldn't think very much more for things were going black he got an order for the limited to run to blind river and told kelly and got the complete and then big cloud asked who was on the wire and toddles answered that in a mechanical sort of a way without quite knowing what he was doing and went limp in kelly's arms and as toddles answered back in big cloud regan the sweat still standing out in great beads on his forehead fierce now in the revulsion of relief glared over Donkin's left shoulder as Donkin's left hand scribbled on a pad what was coming over the wire. Regan glared fiercely, then he sputtered. "'Who in hell's Christopher Hyslop Hoogan, hmm?' Donkin's lips had a queer smile on them. "'Toddles,' he said. Regan sat down heavily in his chair. "'What?' demanded the super. "'Toddles,' said Donkin. "'I've been trying to drum a little railroad into him on the key.' Regan wiped his face. He looked helplessly from Donkin to the super and then back to Donkin. But, but what's he doing at Castle Siding? How'd he get there? Hmm? Hmm? How'd he get there? I don't know, said Donkin, his fingers rattling his Castle Siding call again. He doesn't answer any more. We'll have to wait for the story till they make Blind River, I guess. And so they waited. And presently at Blind River, Kelly dictating to the operator, not Beale, Beale's day man, told the story. It lost nothing in the telling. Kelly wasn't that kind of a man. He told them what Toddles had done, and he left nothing out, and he added that they had Toddles on a mattress in the baggage car with a doctor they had discovered among the passengers looking after him. At the end, Carleton tamped down the dottle in the bowl of his pipe thoughtfully with his forefinger and glanced at Donkin. "'Got along far enough to take a station key somewhere?' he inquired casually. "'He's made a pretty good job of it as the night operator at Castle's.' Donkin was smiling. "'Not yet,' he said. "'No?' Carleton's eyebrows went up. "'Well, let him come in here with you, then, till he has. "'And when you say he's ready, we'll see what we can do. "'I guess it's coming to him. "'And I guess.' He shifted his glance to the master mechanic. I guess we'll uh, go down and meet number two when she comes in, Tommy. Regan grinned. With our hats in our hands, said the big-hearted master mechanic. Donkin shook his head. Don't you do it, he said. I don't want him to get a swelled head. Carleton stared, and Regan's hand, reaching for his back pocket for his chewing, stopped midway. Donkin was still smiling. I'm going to make a railroad man out of Toddles, he said. End of chapter one, part two.